Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, listener. This is Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And you will be pleased to note that uh, Lalitha will be back next week. She's been off uh, having a great rest, a holiday, uh, which was a great thing to do at the end of the, a busy 2015. But she's ready, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for next week. And, of course, another regular will be back too the following week, hopefully. And that's Noah Basil, Dr Noah Basil. He and his wife had a new little baby. They're entering the uh, the uh, world of parenthood, as he said, with uh, uh, great glee. Even his email uh, dripped with uh, the great uh, wonder and uh, excitement of uh, new fatherhood. So our congratulations go out to the Basile family. And today we're going to follow uh, our trajectory, the thing that we've been doing over the last few weeks, and uh, highlighting a couple of films or a film from the Transition Film Festival. Now, the Transition Film Festival is a festival of ideas, and it starts on the 18th of February to the 3rd of March in Melbourne. And uh, the cinema that uh, uh, is... um, Where you can see these films is the Nova in Carlton. Uh, It also goes around to other parts of the country and uh, you can obviously uh, dip into some of these films in other ways other than being part of the Transition Film Festival. But we're lucky enough in Melbourne to be able to uh, go there uh, over 18th of February to the 3rd of March to uh, be enlightened in so many different ways. And today's film is Haida Gua. Now you may not know very much about Haida Gua but Haida Gua is uh, actually a, a seri- and it is explained in the interview with the director uh, Charles Wilkinson it's uh, off uh, the uh, British Columbian coast it's a series of islands and uh, Haida uh, is the name of the indigenous people so it's actually a film that explores how one can uh, be uh, environmentally resilient and how uh, Indigenous or uh, First Nations people are actually the leaders in uh, restoring some sort of balance, economic balance, when we use uh, the environment. Later in the program, we've got an interview with uh, Dominique uh, Favela. From, uh, she's got running this exhibition called Modern Myths, and it's on at the Coonahan Gallery in Sydney Road. It's uh, all about uh, a series of artists and their uh, impressions of myths and their their effects on uh, people's uh, decision-making 
in fact, the landscape, the uh, the mental landscape that people live in that uh, affects their decision-making. Later on, we're going to have a, a chance to listen to This Is The Week That Was. And later on, we're going to hear the uh, second part of a interview I did with Vince Emanuel, the irrepressible uh, Chicago man who uh, was a former uh, soldier who is now an activist and uh, he uh, has got lots to say about what's going on in America, the America that uh, is uh, dealing with the primaries leading to the next uh, election that they've got going on in the US. And he helped last week to explain the attraction of uh, Trump and how Trump is actually not such a uh, clown as he's been depicted here. What what attracts people to uh, believing that he might be the saviour of uh, the American dream, as it were. Anyway, that's uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on this morning. Women of the world unite for women's liberation, decolonisation and economic justice. Come to the International Women's Day 2016 Rally and March on Tuesday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library on Swanston Street. If you support global demands for gender, racial and economic justice, please join us as we take to the streets on the 8th of March. For more information, call Liz on 0452 518 211 or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash IWD Melbourne. The IWD Melbourne Collective is a 3CR supporter. It might have escaped your attention, but the Liberal National Party, the federal government in Australia, just announced its new sex discrimination commissioner, Kate Jenkins. She is like Michaela Cash, who's in charge of uh, employment and the the rest of that, uh, and industrial relations federally. Kate Jenkins is a former Herbert Smith Freehills partner, uh, in employment law, and uh, it made me wonder if uh, the Australian public was actually uh, uh, responsible for the retirement plans for all the women who work at that particular anti-union um, <laughs> legal firm. Anyway, <laughs> you're on uh, 3CR with Annie, 855 on your AM dial. We're streaming, and uh, of course you might be listening uh in the future, but uh, you're all, all you li- you listener out there, you're live with me on this morning, this uh, rather nice little morning. Uh, we're uh, a couple of other things that uh, probably will turn up in this is the week that was was that uh, they've uh, discovered that uh, the work for the doll is basically a failure if you were thinking that it was to help people who are long-term unemployed to get employment. A minuscule amount of people, so like 2% or have actually uh, achieved uh, employment out of that particular expensive uh, government program, which uh, it requires uh, people who are unemployed to work considerable amount of 20 hours of free labour each week so uh, it has done nothing but uh, cause uh, grief to the people who are unemployed. 
and which may have been its genuine intention. And uh, there was the, the news is out, but we uh, brought it to you first on uh, Solidarity Breakfast, or rather uh, the uh, people from the uh, Tax Justice Network brought it to you a couple of programs ago, that uh, there was no tax uh, return from uh, raising the uh, GST to 15%. The uh, figures are in. There was absolutely no new money going into the nation's uh, financial pool by increasing the GST to 15%. And that's another one that makes you wonder what was the purpose of it. Was it to just grind the poor into the ground? There you go. There's been demos across the nation, uh, really effective ones, people suspending off the... uh, Eastern uh, Freeway Bridge uh, calling for let them stay. It's a campaign, let them stay around the refugees who uh, are being uh, sent back to Nauru, 267 people, apparently even terminally ill people and children who are already going to school here quite comfortably <clears throat> are being uh, sent back to, to Nauru for some unknown reason, despite the fact that uh, premiers from various states, including Victoria, have sent letters to the uh, federal government saying they're quite happy to uh, sh- uh, to shelter them in Victoria. And uh, there's been a sackings of hundreds of scientists in the climate change section of CSIRO. And uh, there was a very cheeky thing on um, the... Uh, Facebook the other day saying that uh, on one day of the week we've got uh, uh, one, oh, I can't even say it, what is it, uh, you might have heard that Greg, Greg Hunt was voted the best minister in the world, but <laughs> for some reason or other, and uh, and uh, then the next day you've got uh, uh, um, Barnaby Joyce becoming the uh, head of the National Party and the vice president. Uh, um, uh, you know, the second in charge of Australia, whatever they call it. And uh, the Facebook uh, message says, and now I'm just absolutely freaked out by what might be going to happen on Friday because <laughs> of this endless madness that is going on. Now, 3CR is having a subscriber drive and I know that uh, you'd love to uh, help out. So this is how to pay. your support for a 3CR program during Radiothon? Well, you can call us on 9419 8377 or visit our website 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. And thank you for being part of 3CR's Radio 4. Well, that's a bit cheeky because it's not the Radiothon, it's a subscriber drive, but the information is exactly 
as it should be for um, subscribing to 3CR. Keep independent progressive radio in air and uh, you can take uh, Jan's advice and do all those different thing methods for uh, subscribing to 3CR. Uh, it's uh, $65 wage, $35 concession and $110 solidarity, which is the best money that you will spend in a week, I can tell you. So let's move on to uh, the program. Charles Wilkinson, he's the director of a film called Haida Gua, On the Edge of the World. And if you go and see this movie, which is going to be screening at uh, the Nova on Tuesday, the 23rd of February at 8.45pm, you'll see why it's called The Edge of the World. It's a most beautiful, seductive place. I've just watched your film and it's uh, quite a fascinating affair. I was quite interested in uh, some of the things people were saying uh, about Haida uh, Gua. Is that how you say it? That's exactly right, yes. Yeah, Haida Gua. Can you uh, tell me about how you uh, became involved in uh, making a film about such a beautiful place? Sure. We, we'd, made an, we'd made a number of environmental films um, and they were all really depressing, yeah. as most <laughs> as most environmental films are. And we got to the point that we were looking for somewhere that would express some kind of sign of hope. Um, people kept asking us after after all the screenings of our other other films, you know, well, what should we do? Should we go home and slit our wrists, or or should we party on, or what? Like, is there any is there any place that's doing it right? Because we certainly have seen a lot of examples of places that are doing it wrong. And when we found Haraguay, we saw signs there that, that in, indeed people there are doing it right. So we thought that to tell the story of Haraguay would give people a really simple and easy to follow roadmap for how to, how to begin to turn this thing around. And uh, can you explain to our listeners here what Haraguay is? Sure, yeah. Haraguay is like um, uh, an archipelago um, of about 160 islands that are off the north coast of uh, British Columbia, Canada. So you, actually, you can see Alaska from there. Um, and the people have lived there. The indigenous races lived there, the Haida, for 14,000 years that we can count, possibly longer. Uh, when you see totem poles that come from Canada, as a general rule, those are made by the Haida. Their arts are, are just phenomenal. Their culture thrived until, um, you know, the, the contact with white traders, at which point the population went, because of disease primarily, went from anywhere between ten and 20,000 Haida to 600. They were almost completely wiped out. But in the in the interim, they fought back, and they their numbers have grown. <clears throat> and in the excuse me, in the late seventies, they realized that their their lands were being completely raped by multinationals cutting the timber off and taking all the fish and the minerals and stuff. And they teamed up with a broad coalition of non-native Haidaguayans and also Canadians and international people, people from all over the world, to mount a ten-year-long campaign to stop the the rape of of their land. And they succeeded. They managed to turn it around and kick out the corporations and managed to start the healing process. So, you know, everybody's protests, but these guys actually did something about it, and it's working. And it's interesting because in that first part of the film, I must say that there was a lot of... uh, resonance to the uh, Indigenous First Peoples uh, story in Australia. But it uh, took my breath away when you, when at a certain, certain point an Indigenous person, a Haida, said that uh, the fight had been for 500 years. Here it's been a little over 200 years. 
Yes. Yeah, no, uh, the interesting thing about the Haida is that because in part they live on an, uh, an island or a series of islands that are 80 miles off the coast, you know, across a very difficult piece of water, really rough weather and so forth, they've been able to sort of sally forth and do bad things and come back and hide. And so they've been relatively aggressive um, they, in terms of their history. They, 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 they were sort of feared along the coast. They were badass to, to just put a word on it. And uh, when, when contact happened, it, the interesting thing is we hear all these stories about, you know, the poor aboriginals and how uh, they, were, they were destroyed by, you know, contact. And in many cases, that's totally true. In the case of the Haida, they were tough and they were resisting really effectively. If they had not been laid low by, by Western diseases, I'm pretty sure that the story would have had a completely different outcome and that they would have uh, not had their lands taken from them. They never signed a treaty and they were never... Um, overcome by military force. It was just a, a war of attrition, you know. And uh, there was an interesting point where uh, at some point the local Haida people had uh, become almost, uh, not just with the disease, but uh, gone under by the uh, uh, consumer society, effectively, the uh, level of consumerism that uh, is the... Uh, the bread and butter, effectively, of North American um, cultural exploitation, really. Uh, absolutely. And, and we saw a pattern there um, that, that is one that looks like it's repeating itself all around the world, which is where a, 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 an Aboriginal people and even even non-Aboriginal people um, start to lose their, their former ways. Like, you know, my parents had a very large garden. My mom used to can. that, And they were by no means unusual. We all did that. We all lived a lot closer to the natural world. But, you know, since the advent of processed foods and, and uh, uh, consumer products that do you know, so much for us that we used to do for ourselves and, and uh, the you know, plentiful, inexpensive energy that does so much of our work for us, we've all of us become very reliant on, on corporate, um, the, you know, on, on the international corporate system. The Haida recognized the dangers involved in that. And when I say the Haida, I mean the Haida Gwaiians, because what's cool is, is that this is a broad coalition of people from all over the world who become Haida Gwaiian. People move there because they like it there. It's just such a cool place to live. And there are no signs there that you'll, you know, you saw in the film, we didn't hide, you know, the Esso signs and the McDonald's signs and the Walmart signs. They don't have any of that stuff. None of it. I think there might be two logos on the whole, on the whole archipelago. People there don't, I want to be clear though, the downside, if you want to call it a downside, is that that very life in the fast lane, consumer life that, that many people live in the you know, industrialized world, they don't live that way in Haida Gwaii. So people could look at them and think, well, they're poor, you know, because they don't have brand new Mercedes Benzes and they don't, you know, all have hot, hot tubs and eat steaks that thick every night and stuff. They, they live much closer to the earth and much more the way our, our grandparents lived. Although, you know, they have cell phones and, and stuff like that. It's just they don't have too much stuff. They got about the right amount of stuff. And uh, so they don't consider themselves poor at all. And frankly, when you spend any time there, you think these guys are rich. For example, they eat the best food I've ever tasted in my life. They just pick fresh seafood out of the ocean and it's unbelievable. Mm. And, and this is uh, the type of fight back that you're actually chronicling in this particular uh, story, isn't it? Because uh, there was a point there where something like two thirds of the forests were removed by corporations as well as... Uh, a large amount of the uh, the fish life was removed. Half, half of them, yeah. And and by now, 
almost two-thirds of the archipelago is under some form of protection. And looking back, it seems like it was easy. Just this broad coalition dug their heels in and said, we're not going to take this anymore. And finally, you know, two or three levels of government had to, what it really amounted to is that they became such a, a major pain in the ass that the governments just said, oh God, okay, whatever. And they, they arranged for the, the carnage to stop. This is a pattern that could work anywhere. When people care enough about where they live, they restore it and it becomes as beautiful as Haida Gwaii because that place today is just a jewel. You go there and there's whales. I mean, whales leap out of the water all around you and there's sea lions and salmon. I mean, I, I stood in streams there where the fish knocked you over. There's so many salmon. There's eagles everywhere and ravens. It's just, my God, it's, you bend down and pick up your dinner off the beach. It's, and that's in large part due to the restoration that, that the people there have fought for. And it's a way of thinking, oh, before we move on, I'll have to say that I have to take my hat off to you for you showing for the very first time a woman salmon fishing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen a woman display uh, showing her skill as a salmon fisher. Well, uh, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll give you an anecdote. Somebody uh, walked into a, a bar on Haida Gwaii and a guy, and he said to the woman who ran the bar, I'm looking for work. You look like you need a strong man around here. And she said, honey, on Haida Gwaii, a strong man is a woman. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, now, getting down to it, it's about the way people think isn't it? It's about uh, embracing not just nature, but actually changing or being more in tune. It's about thinking of how you think and feel, isn't it? Yes, it is very much. <clears throat> Excuse me. I do want to stress, though, that that a key to the to the harmony that exists there and, and the the, you know, the growing sustainability is that the, the Aboriginal people there are the dominant majority and they own the land and nobody argues with that. It's theirs. The archipelago <clears throat> where the government of Canada says, no, we own kind of, you know, all the crown land there and stuff, much as they do in Australia, I think. Um, well, they do. That, they do yeah, say the, that here. <laughs> The Haida says, no, it's ours, and they act as if it is theirs, and so they really de facto pretty much own the land. And so from that comes a kind of respect. Nothing happens there without their say-so, but they're not exclusive. They don't say, oh, you're white, you can't play. In point of fact, uh, anyone gets to play if they respect them. So what you'll see is, unlike almost any other community that I've ever been in that has a large Aboriginal component, there's a kind of equality there, which is just absolutely delightful. People don't deal with each other on the basis of race there. They deal with each other on the basis of ability and congeniality and stuff like that. So unlike so many other places in Canada, I don't know about Australia, but I suspect it's not dissimilar in some places. You don't see Aboriginal people slinking around, you know, with a half-empty bottle in their hand, looking like completely depressed and down. There's some of that, of course, but that's not the rule. The rule is you see these bright, proud, happy people who are contributing to this incredible fusion between the best part of, of you know, European culture and the best part of Aboriginal culture. And what emerges is, is a new way of thinking um, that, that tries to eliminate some of the bad ways from both. And it's, it's pretty inspiring. Now, it's really interesting, too, the couple of things that uh, different uh, Haida people said in that film were things, terms like ecological resilience. That's a term I hadn't actually heard before. 
Yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, Severin Suzuki, David Suzuki's daughter, the famous activist, she says, you know, it's a little harder to imagine that you're living in the natural world when you're living in downtown Melbourne. But she doesn't actually say Melbourne. I just kind of threw that in. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> But she says everywhere you go, nature is there. And it's really true. Um, nature, like if you were to dig up the sidewalks in your city and, and water the, the ground and throw some seeds on it, it would grow. That's what ecological resilience is. It's not too late. Like every time people try, the, the earth is incredibly resilient and it can turn around and, and bloom uh, if we just give it half a chance. The, uh, uh, the people are actually now having to deal with a, a new issue, which is the pipeline, the tar sands and gas pipeline that uh, the uh, government, the Canadian government wants to bring close by your waters or their waters. What is going to happen here? Well, the uh, resistance to that has been uh, really striking and inspiring. And interestingly, most progressive white people in Canada are we're pinning our last hopes for saving our ecology on the First Nations, on our Aboriginal peoples. And that's pretty interesting because, you know, even just a generation ago, they were pretty marginalized. That's not the case anymore. It turns out that in their haste to take over the land here in Canada, the, the crown, the, the settlers, the, the people who came in, they grabbed all the stuff in the south. And when the First Nations people complained, they said, oh, you can have all that stuff up north because nobody wanted to go up there because, you know, it's, it's bush, really. Well, now it turns out that the bush is like incredibly rich in resources. So and it kind of belongs to the First Nations guys. So we're having a lot of trouble kicking them off that now. And they're standing up for their rights and they're saying consultation is basically doesn't just mean that you do what you want and tell us what you're going to do. Consultation means that we have to say that it's okay. And increasingly, they're not saying that it's okay. So the pipeline projects that were going down the corridor to lead from the interior of northern Canada out to the north coast, which would then send 300 super tankers filled with the dirtiest oil known to man, the most toxic and uncleanable oil known to man, 300 of those tankers through the second most difficult waterway on the planet, that that project has been stopped in its tracks. Now, who knows? Maybe they'll find some way of, of, of bulldozing it through. But that combined with the price of world oil, it's not looking too good. Um, likewise, our, our current government here in the, in the province of British Columbia believes that our future lies in liquid natural gas. Well, I and many people advise them to take a look in your neighborhood down in Australia. You guys are exporting natural gas for a lot less than we can. And yet they keep trying to push these series of pipelines through there. Again, a super tanker headed, you know, headed past the Hidegwine shores laden with liquid natural gas. Yeah, when it goes on the rocks, as invariably some will do. The liquid natural gas itself isn't so much of a problem, but the incredible load of bunker fuel in their tanks or the ballast when they're coming the other way is a huge issue. And the, 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 the environment there is so fragile. I mean, it's recovering, but it's still so fragile that one major oil, oil spill would wipe out the food supply of an entire people for a generation. So they're organizing they're, um, and, and they're training lawyers. They've got tons of Aboriginal lawyers. Other lawyers from other parts of the country come and join their cause. And, and it's a real fight. And right now the fight looks like it's, it's one that can be won. I believe in my heart that that fight will be won, um, but only partly because of the heroism of the people fighting it. I think it's also because of the way the world economy is going right now, which is not 
you know, kind of the way that people hoped it would go. And the uh, concerted effort of uh, the all the peoples, isn't it? It's the First Nations people, but also other people who are prepared to fight this same fight. Absolutely, because, I mean, there are, of course, some people living on Haida Gwaii who still are logging, who have big, fancy pickup trucks and eat steaks that thick every night, you know. Um, th- th- of course, there's always going to be a little bit of that. But no, the majority of people in Haida Gwaii are there because they love the place and they're prepared to defend it fiercely. And they do. They, they, they go to meetings. They're at protest meetings. They plan things. They build alternative energy. They, they're really engaged in it. They do that with the time they have that they save by not spending their days watching television or staring at those hopeless little phones in their hand or or engaged in going to the mall and stuff like that. If you don't do that stuff, if you're not engaged in earning enough money to acquire a bunch of possessions that at the end of the day probably aren't going to make you feel a whole lot better, you're going to have a lot of time on your hands. And these people use that time to protect their place and to create a lifestyle that's really admirable. It's just so much fun living there. Uh, in some ways, some people would say that this is fanciful uh, concept for the entire world. But one of the people says something really interesting. Uh, he actually says that actually what it's about is ch- uh, changes, changing the cost of business by doing it our way. I mean, business is business, but you have to, you have to factor in all the costs. No, you're absolutely right. And that's a real issue. And you really put your finger on on a difficult problem, because if we in any given part of the world force the corporations who are doing resource extraction to do it in a responsible way where they pay for all the externalities, the cost of doing business will be much higher in our region than it will be in some place where they, the, the leaders are corrupt and they'll just say, sure, do whatever you want. And that's been the pattern around the globe, that capital moves freely. And they, if we make environmental laws, they'll come and destroy Australia. And if you make laws, then they'll, come and just, they'll go and destroy you know, South America, which is ongoing right now. So that's a real problem. That's not one that one group of people can, can um, really protect themselves from. So they've taken you know, economic hits. Uh, you know, when the corporations all left, a lot of employment left too. And so the standard of living clearly went down. But, um, you know, in economic terms, but in real life terms, um, living there is like living in summer camp. You know, the people there are really happy people. Um, And they're happy from the cradle to the grave. And they're not lonely. Loneliness is not a problem there in a way that loneliness is such a terrible problem in the developed world. People have families there. Um, They learn skills like fixing their cars because they have to and carving and sourcing food and sharing food and hanging out. I mean, it's like I say, it's like summer camp. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? And uh, it's a lovely film to go and see for how life could be. Uh, with, uh, Like you say, uh, corporations go from one place to another and they use the argument of uh, getting more jobs and economic wealth. But in actual fact, as soon as they can mechanise, the jobs go. And the big question that was left for the hider was who inherits the mess? Yeah, exactly. And we see that everywhere. Uh, uh, mining companies come into Canada. I know they do this in Australia as yeah, well. They they're do. doing it all over the world. And, and they make these horrific messes promising that they're going to clean them up, but they never do. They never do. They leave it and then we're holding the bag. And uh, the Haida realize that. They don't have any illusions about that. So they say, if you're going to come and work here, you're going to do it our way. And if you can't afford to do it our way, well, then don't come here. And interestingly, the Haida are in such a position of ecological richness. It's noted in the film that there's greater biodiversity in Haida Gwaii than any place on Earth, even including the Amazon. So 
you know, the, the richness of the environment means that there's going to be a lot of resources there. So people will come and do business their way. So they're really lucky in that respect. Thank you very much for spending some time with me and uh, to discuss your film. And uh, uh, we can only uh, say to people that it's it's a, a great thing to go and see uh, Heidi well, Gwai. Thank you, Annie. I just, if I can add one thing, uh, what I'd like to say is, is that um, somebody, a friend of mine said the other day that so often a film will be all vegetables, like eat your vegetables, kids. And he said the thing that you got to do when you make a film to get people interested is to include a little bit of dip you know, to go with those vegetables. And I, I like to think that we've included an awful lot of dip in Haida Gwaii. It's really a fun movie to see. So it's not just good for you. It's really a fun, a fun ride. <laughs> Thanks very much, Charles. Thank you, Annie. Bye-bye. Good night. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton, and I listen to 3CR, and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. New illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, or pick up your copy at the station. And you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. It's uh, a nice morning to be up, but I'm sure if you're listening to the program at another future date that uh, the weather will also be ever-present. We've just been listening to a little chat with uh, Charles Wilkinson, director of Haida Gwaii on the Edge of the World, uh, winner of Best Canadian Feature at Hot Docs. Haida Gwaii spotlights the potential of a balanced life that respects the beauty, power and abundance of nature. And if you want to enjoy this uh, positive film, then uh, you can go and see it on Tuesday, the 23rd of February, 8.45pm, as part of the Transition Film Festival down at Nova in the Carlton, 18th of February to the 3rd of March is the Transition Film Festival, but Haida Gwaii is on on the 23rd of February. What a lovely fellow and what a lovely uh, place. You will know what I mean if you go and see the film. Uh, but uh, let's move on. We're going to uh, listen to a little chat I had with Domenica Favalla. She's the curator of a very interesting exhibition called Modern Myths, which is on at our very own Cunahan Gallery in uh, in Brunswick. It's uh, Brunswick uh, Sydney Road. It's two thirty three Sydney Road. If you're wondering, it's a it's a gallery that's actually attached to uh, the council, and uh, it uh, puts on some pretty fabulous things. And the whole idea of modern myths caught my imagination because, of course, people uh, create their lives around myths. Hello, Domenica Vavala, and uh, you're the curator of the latest exhibition that's on at the Coolahan Gallery down in uh, 
Sydney Road, uh, and it's called Modern Myth. And I wanted to talk to you about the whole conception of the the uh, the exhibition. Why did you choose to explore the notion of modern myth? It's quite enduring. So even though it may not be a prominent feature in all of our daily lives, it's something that still uh, consistently sort of underpins our society in, in different ways. So I think that sometimes, uh, you know, it can be sort of relegated to the background as something that's a little bit, um, you know, it's a little bit ridiculous or it's not that serious or it's not that needed. But uh, in so many ways, I think mythology tends to still come to the surface in other ways. It sort of changes its face for different audiences across uh, different different eras in time. So, so with myth, it actually does actually uh, 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 motivate people's actual uh, belief structures and uh, what they do and how they do it. Is that what you're saying? I think so, yeah. And I think there's some myths that are, you know, that they're, they're particularly sort of Resonant, um, you know, one of the artists in the exhibition has um, she's done a sculpture based on the the Greek beauty myth of Narcissus, and I think that's something that you know is fairly topical in today's society. You know, just with it's kind of the era of the selfie. You know, I think that that kind of myth keeps uh, continuing through through writing and through story and uh, through film. So it's something that's very enduring, and I think also the thing about myth is that and to me that's interesting and that it remains relevant is that even though we're sort of uh, in the midst of a scientific um, you know empirical sort of culture particularly in the west um, there are some things that perhaps science can't uh, fully explain still and uh, and even though we have um, you know we're very sophisticated with our technology and and with our scientific progress and yet there's still some things that um you know that our that that science and technology can't explain, and in a sense, that's a myth as well, isn't it? Yeah, I, I believe so. I think um, you know, and and myth has, as I said, it's sort of got many faces, and I think it's it's still very appealing to people. And and I found that the reaction to this exhibition has been that um, we've just had a, a fantastic reaction, and I think it's really particularly at the opening there was just so many people that were just wanting to to talk about it and meet at that level and really discuss uh, those kinds of ideas. And even within the group of artists, we've had a really fantastic conversation going about about these ideas. And uh, yeah, so I think it, it, it just that proves to me that there is still a, a you know a strong um, element of myth in, in in people's minds, and that's still relevant today. And a need to discuss it. There's about eleven artists that are involved in this particular exhibition, isn't there? That's right. Yeah. And yep. So, what kind of myths do you you've spoken about narcissism? What what other myths did people choose to explore? Well, I think um, with with this group of artists, uh, so what I did initially was that I sort of posed the title to the artists and I, I basically said to them, uh, just respond in the way that you feel is 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 the most relevant to you. And I, I think that the title of the exhibition actually came after I'd chosen the artist. So what I found with the artists was that they all had, and including my own practice, that the, all the practices were sort of harmonious in, in the sense that they had a, a sort of a tone of mythology about them. So uh, perhaps not 
direct, directly related to particular stories in mythology that you might recognise, there's these elements of the otherworldliness and, and spirituality and, you know, um, and there's all sorts of themes of, you know, uh, you know these um, imaginative, imaginative themes of occultism and things like that, you know. So, so some of the... Um, I think a lot of the artists have re- sort of referencing ancient spirituality. Like I think Dear Plastic, they have that um, that sort of uh, theme going through their practice, where they make these um, they're sort of paper sculptures, and you know, but they they have that in mind when when they create their pieces that they have this link to their heritage. Um, and and I think yeah, a lot of the artists have. Uh, a similar thing, like um, before you move on, that's yeah. very interesting that they've chosen paper because, of course, that means it's disposable. Yeah, ephemeral. Yeah, mm. which is uh, very Buddhist in its nature, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, which is another beautiful aspect to um, the way that mythology and art can sort of come together and and re- and relate to people. Um, yeah, so, and, you know, some of the artists are, we've actually got a mix of artists. So we've got some emerging artists and some mid-career and some very established artists. And I think you find someone like Deborah Klein was already sort of working on a body of work uh, and uh, it's a homo insector series and, and her insect women and, and I think people really responded to that that work. Uh, and so in, in my mind, Deborah has a, a sort of a personal mythology going on where she's she's sort of creating her own stories and she's creating her own world and um, you could say that for for a, a number of the artists in in the show and uh, Yasmina Saninas as well who has been known for her she's a, a, a printmaker but she's actually taken her practice off the wall and she's for the first time showing um, they're actually instruments so they're these um they're sort of based on a lagerphone, so she's carved these these um, these instruments, and 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 they're they're sort of alive, and and they're they're sort of shimmering, and and they're they're amazing. So she, so she's actually uh, they're they're shaped like animals. So when you look at them, you're sort of transported to a Lithuanian forest, a pagan forest, and and I think that's the beauty of this this show and this group of artists is that you can look at any of the works and. You you can be transported to somewhere in in your mind. So I think the the the, the good thing about the artist responding to this theme in a in a personal way is that they've opened it up for the audience to sort of to have their own thoughts and their own imaginings about about where this can take them. It's interesting. Do you think that uh, it being in Australia makes it possible for this to be a perfect place to have an exhibition like this with such variety? Yeah, I I think so, and I think Australia is you know it's it's a very interesting place in that we are, you know, most of us with European backgrounds are still quite close to our heritage um, in other countries, and so I think we've got uh, well we've we've already got a, a really vibrant art scene in in Melbourne, but it's it's. I think a lot of the artists in this show as well have sort of their reference, their past, and and I think also acknowledging their their place in 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 this in this country in this place as well, and and that sort of um, you know that that sensitivity there as well. So I think that um, Australia is a really perfect place to think about modern or new mythology because, in a way, we have been sort of creating our own as well as kind of 
you know, as as settlers kind of crashing into an older mythology with First Nations people. So um, in so many ways, it's just, uh, it's it's it can be troubled, but it's also very interesting as a time, I think. So, yeah, it, I think it's a perfect time. What have you learned from doing this exhibition? Uh, I think I've just learnt that on, on a very practical level um, that having having an idea, uh, ne- never to just sit on an idea. If you've got an idea that you think has some value to just talk about it with people, with like-minded people. And what I found was that um, I had a I just had a dream list of artists that I wanted to exhibit in this in this show and almost all of them said yes and and I thought that was um brilliant you know I, I just thought it, all I had to do was ask and then the dialogue was open and then things just organically started to happen and and I think what I've learned is just to um just to go with your gut on so many things um so yeah that that's what I did with this show is I just wanted to trust in the artists, trust in their practice and just say, um, let's all come together, you know, in a meeting of minds and just sort of put something together that's, that's um, meaningful. And I, I think, I feel like we, we, we've done that. Is there anything else you want to say? Uh, I did want to just say that uh, on the 13th of February at 2.30 at Coonahan Gallery, we do have artist talks. Um, so we'll be Skyping across to Carmel Seymour, who's an artist who's residing in Iceland at the moment. And so we'll have six artists talking. And I think we're actually going to have um, the Lagerphones. We're going to see the Lagerphones in action. So Yasmina Saninas actually has a, uh, a, a Lithuanian folk band called the Lost Clog. And we're hoping that some of the members of the Lost Clog will come and they'll actually play the Lagerphones and sing us some songs. So, uh, yeah, just to come along on Saturday at 2.30 if anyone's interested. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover, I could hold my hand back Thank you. Your love is lifting me higher than I've ever been lifted before. Radical Radio. Call 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au and we'll be at your side forevermore.
Yeah, you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We've just been having a chat with Domenica Favalla from uh, her exhibition uh, called Modern Mist, which is on at uh, the moment at the uh, Coonahan Gallery in Brun- in Brunswick. It's in uh, it's uh, near the uh, it's in Sydney Road, which is a very long road, but it's near uh, the Brunswick uh, Town Hall. And uh, as uh, Domenica said today. Uh, if you're listening to this today, it's uh, they've got artist talks uh, at uh, 2.30 p.m. and they're crossing live to Iceland, which has got to be uh, great fun. The uh, Lagophones are going to sing their music and uh, the uh, Lost Clogs, are, uh, the Lost Clog is going to play. <laughs> what a great name. Uh, you're uh, here with Annie on uh, Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And uh, we, of course, are streaming. You can pick us up podcast later on if uh, that is your ilk. Um, I also want to remind you that Kurunduk, uh, La Mama Mobile, is uh, We Will Show the Country on Country Performance at Kurunduk, February the 21st. Uh, in 1881, the people of Kurunduk Aboriginal Station took on the board for the protection of Aborigines in a fight for justice, dignity and self-determination. Now, Kurunduk is uh, 19 Barrack Lane, Hillsville, Gate 5, uh, gates are open, sorry, at 5pm. Performance starts at 6.30pm. It's uh, Kurunduk. We will show the country. It's on country. So this is why it's so important. Uh, $25 full price, $18 concession. Proceeds go to the maintenance of the Kurunduk property. If you want to know more about it, then uh, you should uh, go to uh, the uh, La Mama Website that's www.lamama.com.au, or you can ring uh, between uh, in uh, 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 03-9347-6142. So, I mean, obviously, it's a a theatre, so uh, it will be open at particular times Monday to Saturday. uh, It closes at 5 pm and on Saturday and Sunday, it's it's open at 3 p.m. Anyway, uh, the number again, 0393476142 or www.lamama.com.au. Uh, there's a couple of other things that are coming up. The uh, Saturday, February the 20th, which is going to be White Night, the third White Night with all its startling... Uh, Melbourne within Melbourne City in uh, startling light... Uh, dress, uh, fantastic uh, displays of uh, animation and other lights uh, on the public buildings, uh, which is uh, a great night for people who are interested in uh, flash art and big crowds. But uh, what's on earlier in the day, 12pm, Saturday, February the 20th, at the State Library Steps Rally. These cuts are killing us. End healthcare austerity. This is in relation to the uh, supposed uh, introduction in July of uh, fees for such pathology tests as blood uh, tests, uh, pap smears and other types of uh, tests that uh, will undermine the Medicare system. So that's February the 20th, Saturday, State Library Steps, 12pm. Uh, but tonight, if you're listening to this tonight, is the Curry Night Market, which is going to be on at the Enterprise Park, which I didn't actually know that park next to the Melbourne Aquarium 
Aquarium. It's called the Enterprise Park, but it is. And they're going to have a Koori night market from 5 to 10 p.m. Uh, there's uh, also, just uh, to put into your calendar, uh, Justice for Refugees, the Palm Sunday, March, March the 20th, is uh, put it in your diary because uh, that's uh, where you probably should be on that day. Now, this is the week that was. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer and former big supremo, Paul, had succeeded, as we said last week, in true political form, to both support and oppose increasing the GST. Well, now the oppose bit seems to be winning. Big supremo Malcolm Tunnebull, a great supporter of taxing the poor to pay the rich, displaying the courage we have come to know and love in the political puppet class buckling at the knees and failing to respond to the puppeteers. Backstage despair as the puppeteers predict the end of the world as we know it. Exemplified by giant retail conglomerate was farmers till we crush them's Richard Guard of the Wealth. I do think there is an expectation in the true Blue Aussie community that the government should get on with taxing the poor. So, Richard, the poor are pleading to be taxed so the rich can be better off? Exactly. There is that expectation in the true Blue Aussie community, the whole community. Well, the true Blue Aussie community, that is, community to me, the team on the true Blue Aussie Profits Council board, for instance, and to a person, we agree the poor should pay lots and lots more taxes, not just to make the rich a little richer, but to give the poor themselves a sense of dignity, a sense of belonging, a, a sense of contributing. Uh, but Richard, Oxfam figures have shown the richest 61 people in the world own as much as the bottom half of 3.66 billion people. Yes, doesn't that go to my point? These figures show there is still ample room for positive readjustments to assist the trickle-down effect. It's a disgrace, an abuse of power, that those 3.66 billion people had so much wealth. There, the puppeteer's distress was expressed on their behalf by that morning's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. GST would have raised $34 billion, its headline cried, but announced the rich are already working on alternate ways to cut their taxes. All very academic and interesting discussion point more than anything else, change the rate on the taxes we don't pay in the first place. Oh, Malcolm, what have you done? The price of cravenness, of sensing the poor mightn't be quite as enthusiastic about handing over their hard-earned to the super-rich as Richard's community expectation. The Capitalist Review has been leading the pack as its very balanced columnist Jennifer U. Shit bemoaned the super-rich might be wondering if they made the right decision changing Puppet Tiny a bit more for the bosses with Puppet Malcolm. Poor dears. Speaking of a change, one of the sundry chambers of profit spokespeople, Kate Kahn, smell the money, has resigned from her chamber of profits job after Malcolm and the caring business class party lot appointed her to the new post of small business ombudsman, a direct small business link to government, which on one hand means business as usual, but an appointment lauded by the caring business class. And I thought, 
We can assume soon they'll appoint a prominent workers' spokesperson, perhaps John Setka from the CFMEU, as workers' ombudsman to bring well, workers' issues to the government, give them a direct line, cause because the, their recent appointments have shown just how open-minded and balanced they are. Former Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats Philip Rubbish, for instance, easing his bum off the plush seats after 43 years, perhaps jimmied off, to take his not insignificant public pension to Geneva to become our international spokesperson on human rights. Philip Rubbish, a man whose own daughter denounced his cruelty as he packed the desperates off to the concentration camps and ordered more and more razor wire. He'll certainly do our already highly regarded reputation on human rights the world of good. On Philip Rubbish's former role with concentration camps, razor wire and dispatching of flimsy vessels, Malcolm said if all these kids and their parents were not sent back to the torture, all 267 of them, True Blue Aussie's asylum seeker, Desperate's policy, he really said this, listen, and no embellishment, risks a colossal humanitarian failure. Uh... If we don't torture 267 people, we risk a colossal humanitarian failure. Has he looked up the meaning of humanitarian lately? I I don't think it mentions torture as a key component. And given Lord Rupert of Wapping just cannot forgive the people of Victoria for stuffing up democracy and getting the last state election wrong, when state big supremo hoo-hoo offered to accept the refugees, Lord Rupert's Wapping sin accused hoo-hoo of attempting to pull apart the border policy. So torture remains the humanitarian response. Hoo-hoo accepting the refugees threatens a colossal humanitarian failure. I've said it before, it's despair material. How can satire compete? As with this serious contender for the Republican nomination over in Lord Rupert's home country, the US of the UN of the US of the world, Marco Rubbisho, who accused the current lot of gutting the train killer forces and vowed to rebuild the train killer forces. Heaps and heaps of public don't tax the rich money handed to the merchants of death who, as thanks for their contribution to world peace, don't need to pay any taxes on the taxes they're being handed. China is building up their own military. Well, we can understand how shocked the US would be at a country building up its own military. They're taking over the most important shipping lane in the world, Marco warned, and he would work more closely with True Blue Aussie to declare non-war on China. We're not going to let China take over parts of the South China Sea, he screamed. After all, everyone knows the South China Sea is USR property. Well, well, the whole world is USR property. But where does the how can satire compete bit come in? Well, same day as he said that, a Republican Party commentator said the party saw him as the moderate candidate. The mind boggles at what the hardliners, the non-moderates, might get up to. Well, would boggle if it wasn't for the fact that the respective policies in US of politics are vote and the name of the candidate. That's it. And the nearest thing to a real policy is screaming, she or he will make America great again and God bless it. 
the bloke who's gutted, so, sorry, the guy who's gutted train killing Barack for change, 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 who hasn't changed too much, is talking of joining Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country and France in yet another coalition of the killing to do a little bit of train killing in Libya, where their overthrow of the Qaddafi government has proved such a big hit. Uh, yes, what caused Libya to become a non-functioning state? Terrorism. These terrorists threw out the government. But let's not talk about those non-functioning, fear-ridden states where the US of and its coalition of the killing friends like True Blue Aussie were forced to get rid of anti-liberty, freedom and democracy governments and look at the success stories. Now, we know there's been a lot of catty, envious perhaps comments about this award our Minister for Fossils Greg Haunt the Greedies won as the world's greatest minister. Comments like, what's that say about the rest of them? Well, we should be celebrating so proud of him that such an honour could be awarded to a true blue Aussie, given the award was made at, at, at some so-called parliamentary event hosted by that world leader in parliamentary democracy, in liberty, freedom and democracy, the Arab Emirates. Just ask the world leader in liberty, freedom and democracy, the US of, and it will tell us the Emirates sheikhs and the US of's very, very, very close friend, the Saudi royal entourage hangers-on, are two of the greatest supporters of liberty, freedom and democracy in the region. Why the Saudis run the UN OBS, Human Rights Committee, on behalf of the US of, sitting in the chair brandishing the executioner's sword. Not that the death penalty is used capriciously or ubiquitously, it's reserved for serious anti-social causes, threats to public order like, say, a, a woman driving a car or a Filipino slave reacting to sexual assault and imprisonment. So our new human rights hero, Philip Rubbish, should enjoy exchanging a few human rights notes with the Saudis, piss themselves laughing about treating those fleeing the invasions and non-functioning governments to fun, fun, fun holiday camps on Pacific and Indian Island oceans. Uh, Indian Ocean Islands, I'm sorry, listener. Finally, listener, a scoop. Big Supremo Malcolm has just confirmed he has finally made a decision. I have decided I will continue not to make any decisions, he told a press conference and looked very pleased with himself. Oh, and finally, finally, how could we forget the big, big news of the week, bound to make a massive difference to the lives of working people in this country, the trickle-up effect. Warren resigned and Barnacle took over. Big, big news. Well, if you watch, listen or read the commercial news, apparently, yes, it is important. Perhaps it means caring employers will now be too intimidated to exploit lazy, avaricious workers to the hilt. Whatever. It's important. Good morning. People get ready. Fair go for pensioners coalition calls on both federal and state governments. These governments must take up proposals to fast-track job creation. They must provide decent unemployment income support payments. They must provide publicly funded training delivered in culturally appropriate ways. And they must provide one-stop mental health support services. Father Bob Maguire will launch the statement on the steps of Parliament House Wednesday, 24th of February from 11am. Bring your friends and stand with Fairgo for pensioners and with unemployed Victorians. 
Vigo for Pinterest Coalition Incorporated is a 3CR supporter. And yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And we're going to move on to our last segment on the program, which is our last uh, part of the conversation I had with Vince Emmanuel, who is uh, lives in Chicago, is an activist, and uh, he's uh, got something to say about uh, what's going on in America regarding the uh, primaries. Uh, we get a lot of stuff uh, filtered through the mainstream media, and... Uh, most of it is saying they can't really understand why Trump, the uh, the slightly crazy, uh, is uh, leading in the Republican race. And uh, Saunders, why is Saunders trumping <laughs> Hillary? Uh, anyway, he gives us uh, some information about why this might be so in a way that uh, makes much more sense, I have to say. He uh, told us uh, m- mostly about that last week. This week, he's trying to focus on uh, the people who are uh, trying to uh, establish a better future in American politics. But first off, he he tells us a little bit about the uh, Republican candidates and who are around them. Trump's policies are actually not that different or not different at all from the top seven Republican candidates. He says it in a different way. And as a matter of fact, as I mentioned with his policies in Iraq and some other issues and some of the trade deals like the TPP, his policies are actually better in some ways than the next four Republicans who fall behind him. So anyone in your country who thinks that if we just dodge this Donald Trump bullet, everything's going to be okay, or it's going to be like George W. Bush. No, the people that Ted Cruz is surrounded by are way more right wing than Dick Cheney and Ted and and. Uh, George Bush and the people that Marco Rubio is surrounded with are way more right wing than the people that were surrounding George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. So if anyone out there thinks, hey, you know, if we just get past Trump, okay, no big deal. You know, these other Republicans, they're just whatever. No, these people are equally as mad. And in some ways, their policies are even worse than Trump's. Oh, here's the deal. You and I, if you were to come to the United States and we were to go to a local pub, You're going to have a hard time running into anybody, regardless of whether they identify as a Republican or a Democrat, who's going to sit there and tell you, you know, Annie, the world's looking good. Not too many problems out there. I don't know what you activists are up to. I don't know what you people are up to. No, what you what we are contesting with in the United States is an extreme level of cynicism. Now, that cynicism can be both positive and negative. The negatives are obvious. You know, people just say, hey screw it, there's nothing we can do, the whole system's so screwed up, it's so corrupt, it doesn't matter what we do. But the other side to that is that you already have people in this state of mind where they know that things are wrong. So 50% of the Democratic Party wants a Democratic Socialist elected because they understand that without single-payer health care, without a serious, serious program to cut back fossil fuels and carbon emissions, without... Uh, secondary education being provided for free, that this country is going to continue to slide down the scales and continue to turn into sort of a, you know, deindustrialized wasteland. You know, and it's the same with the Republican side. So, okay, yeah, these people are angry. But it's not not just that. Uh, There is a, they don't call it corruption, but it's quite clear that the financial disaster in 2008 
and uh, where bankers and financial institutions, uh, people didn't go to jail, that there is a very strong sense. And with this new film, The Big Short, there's a really strong sensibility that the collusion between finance and government is so strong that in any other country it would be called corruption. That's a that's a really great point. I'm glad that you brought up the big short. So, you know, I, I think it's great that there's been these sort of, uh, you know, what would you say? Um, Critiques. You know, pieces of artwork, film, I mean, cultural artifacts, you know, as, you, as you'd put it. Like, they, these things are the kinds of things that have been produced in the last six years. I'm sorry, the last eight years since 2008 is truly amazing. I mean, just the documentaries, the films, and you bring up the big short – a great friend of mine, Kim Sipes, who's a sociology professor, just went and saw the film. And he's thinking about using it in his class, uh, the courses he teaches at university, uh, once it, once it um, comes out on video. And, you know, he told me, it was like, Vince, you know, this coupled with Bernie Sanders' campaign, it just comes at a great time. And, and again, I, as, as I mentioned in the first part of our conversation, this is also the, the, the cumulative effect of a lot of positive work, the Occupy movement economic rights organizations, Black Lives Matter, the Black Youth Project, people who are fighting against the foreclosure of homes, people who are trying to stop the closing of public schools, people who are trying to stop the closing of mental health facilities. We've got the teachers who are about to go on strike in Chicago right now. We've got the steel workers who just went on strike for fair wages and fair contract. Um, There's a lot happening in the U.S. right now. So all of the negative yes. But the positives are people are ripe to be organized. You're not dealing with a bunch of people who I think there's this sense that everybody in America just kind of, you know, walks around and, you know, doesn't really care and thinks we're just the greatest country in the world. And yes, those people exist. But these days, Annie, they are few and far between. Most people are extremely angry. And that means that they are ripe to be organized. They know that the system is failing them. Now, the question is, for leftists, for progressives, are, you know, are we willing to get our hands dirty? Are we willing to get in there and to organize the kind of people who are supporting Donald Trump? Do I, am I naive enough to think that we're going to be able to get all of them to switch over to our side? No. But am I, I think, maybe strategic enough to, to believe that we should at least – try and reach out to all these disaffected white working class, uh, uh, former uh, union workers, former industrialized workers, former manufacturing workers. Because this, yes, this is the sort I mean, of thing that should. Bill Deller would do. I mean, this is what he was uh, par excellence, talking to people who would normally uh, be considered to be uh, uh, beyond the pale, you know, pariahs. I mean, everybody needs to be swayed, don't, don't they? Well, you know who's done a good job of this, Annie, has been the environmental movement. Yeah. I mean, now, if you would have told environmentalists 10 years ago that, hey, we're going to be conducting massive – and this is Australia and the United States – we're going to be conducting massive civil disobedience direct action campaigns Against with fracking. Farmers, farmers, ranchers, indigenous community – uh, college kids. I mean, a lot of people, I think, would have said, I don't know about that. That's true. And and another sign here is that the uh, um, the Firemen's Union is endorsing Greens candidates. Yep. Yep. 
And I, I, I would assume that you're going to see – I'd assume you could see more and more of that. I mean, the union, it's been – you know, I, I see, I don't want to get back into the negative. So the positive has been that the union leadership – okay, so the negative is that the union leadership in the United States is supporting Hillary Clinton. The positive is that poll after poll after poll shows, including my union – so I'm a member of the National Writers Union, which is under the United Auto Workers Union. We just received an email three weeks ago, which is unprecedented in our union, uh, asking the membership, who do you want us to back? Usually the leadership backs the Democrat, and that's the end of the story, and there's not much of a debate. Now they're sending out online petitions because they don't want an internal revolt, which is something union leaders in the United States had better watch out for, which is a lot of anger and distrust among the rank-and-file union members who support Bernie Sanders, but the union leadership is throwing their money and their weight behind Hillary Clinton. And this is a major divide. So you see the divide not only in society, of course, between the rich and the poor, the powerful, the non-powerful, but also internally within the left or within um, you know, the union movement or the organized labor movement, you can see these divisions. You know, you see that the elites are the ones who are supporting Hillary Clinton, but the rank and file people, the grassroots people, they are 100% behind Bernie Sanders. So well, this is truly amazing. I mean, you have to well, what I was just thinking, though, uh, if you go back to the uh, fight for the uh, basic wage, uh, if I was following that particular uh, campaign, that that's taken a lot of work from different uh, community and organising groups, supporting people and building people's skills. Like it's a, it is actually not. It hasn't come out of the blue. It's a, a long path to getting strong activism happening and support structures because it's really hard to stand up against a system that uh, you believe that uh, uh, you can't change. Right. Uh, on on the other hand, one of the things that I've found really interesting is about about Obama because of course once you're the president, people can throw stones. But the thing about Obama is that. There's a, a couple of things that he's very uh, keen on, which is obviously the universal health care and uh, also the uh, regulation of guns. Now, as president, he's had to just stand there and say, this is what I stand for, and the powerful people around me are stopping it from happening. Has, have people considered this, that you can have this uh, bringing forth of people's beliefs uh, and desire for change, uh, you know, trying to move the ship around, the huge ship around, but is the system in America capable? To, I mean, we could ask the same question in Australia, but you've got a much bigger country. Is it actually capable of actually being more progressive? I think it's capable of being more progressive, indeed. I mean, I think we also have to be very, very clear here. Bernie Sanders is not Barack Obama. Barack Obama, and this is something I've learned from traveling around the country, or I'm sorry, from traveling around the world. (laughs) A lot of people around the world, and some of this is true. Okay, so let me just say from the get-go, Obama, straight centrist, would not call him a progressive, uh, straight-up centrist, maybe left of center with some of his social issues, uh, you know, marijuana, gay marriage, etc. Um, but straight centrist politician in the vein of Bill Clinton. Right. Uh, no different whatsoever except for skin color and background. Yeah. Um, that's a big difference. 
between him and Bernie Sanders. And when you mentioned universal health care, Barack Obama was never interested in even bringing up single-payer health care. When he had his first meetings in the White House in 2009, when he came into office in the middle of January, some of his first meetings in the White House were about two issues. One was Afghanistan, which mm-hmm. he escalated by sending 45,000 yeah. extra troops there because that so that war in Afghanistan is as much Obama's as it is George Bush's, in my opinion. Great. And number two, with the with the health care legislation, he never once fought for an option which was called the public option, which would have given tons of access to other people for you for uh, Medicare, Medicaid, which would be essentially the same kind of health care program. Uh, or similar to what people can access in a place like Canada. Now, the argument was brought up, oh, but you know, it never would have passed if you would have brought it up. One of one of the mistakes there is that if he would have brought up a real single-payer system, he could have mobilized millions of people, Annie. Yeah, but he right. didn't. He took the neoliberal route and he right. said, okay, we're going to we'll get some health care to more people. And yes, it is true. Obamacare has. I have friends who Obamacare has literally saved their lives. I have other people who hate it. Um, the problem is, is that he never once came out and said, we want a true single payer system. He said, we want to give some people some health care. But let's also please the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industries by m- forcing people to purchase private health care insurance. I don't know yep, if people I quite understand this. So, so this is you like know. an H-way bet, if you're a betting, horse racing betting person. Right, and, it, well, and this, is, this is how the system works for those in Australia who don't understand. It's not as though the government is providing health care for people under Obamacare. Now, the government, access to government care has expanded under Obamacare, but he did not create or they did not create, the people in Congress, a system through the federal government. What they created was a marketplace of private insurers who have to compete to try and bring rates down and then put those private insurers into one pool and told people, you have to purchase from this pool. So now, as of yesterday, what was it, three days ago now, if you didn't purchase health insurance this year, which some people can't afford to purchase it, some people don't have the means to access the program. You know, you're going to get fined by the federal government six hundred and fifty dollars. Oh, so, I right. mean, this is, okay. This, this is the kind of crap, Annie. That you know, people hear it and they hear it from the right wing, and the right, and you know, of course, they say it for all the wrong reasons. But they could play it up because they know they're like, oh, well, this healthcare thing is kind of a, you know, it's a joke. It's like, yeah, it helps some people. People, but we, but the people that we're forcing to purchase health insurance. So when we say, oh, 35 million more people are insured under Obamacare, well, yeah, that's because the federal government now forces people to pay a private insurer. Doesn't matter if your coverage is $20 a month and you don't get crap for it, you still have to buy that coverage from a private insurance company. Uh, so it's, if we go back to the original uh, intention of the question, which is, the pre- does whoever gets to be president do they really well, have any yes. power? Yes. So I mean, with Bernie, I mean, so the point is, you know, I don't, I don't want to go off about Obamacare, but I, no, I, no, know, no, 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 so it's okay. I mean, for, does explain for something me from that cliff? But the uh, no, that was important. I'm glad you did explain it. Uh, I had the impression that he was a man who basically was unable to get anything to happen. Yes, he's been unable to get some of his legislation 
passed. And this is true. Some of it would have been infrastructure legislation. Some of it would have been improvements to health care and so on. But it is not – I think we have to be very careful and very serious. And the person's work to follow on this is Paul Street, who's an academic, a historian, and a great journalist from Iowa City, Iowa, who's been following Barack Obama. I actually wrote two books on Obama uh, for the last – I'd say 12, 14 years he's been following Obama. So Paul Street is the guy to check out if you want to know more yeah. about Obama's history and sort of his politics and ideology and so on. Right. Okay. But get, let's that get aside. back to the notion now, of – what Bernie Sanders could do if he was in office, yeah. I, you know, he could do major things. And I mean the number one thing – the number one thing is he's going to be the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces. Now – there's also see there's also a trick that liberals are playing small l liberals democrats in the united states they say that when obama got into office oh my god the congress they blocked him from doing anything meaningful he just can't get anything done but if you remember correctly by the end of 2008 when bush left office there were books historians academics documentaries um all all trying to describe and all proclaiming that the executive branch in the United States was now the most powerful, most powerful entity in the federal government. You remember that? Yeah, I do. I, I do mean, remember. You can, you can go back and look at the literature, too. I mean, it was there. You know, people were freaking out that Bush and Cheney had concentrated so much power in the executive branch that, my God, from now on, we have an imperial presidency, that presidents in the, in the White House, in the executive administration can get away with whatever they want. That's so right. then Obama comes into office and all of a sudden we are supposed to believe that the that the people in the White House have no power. This isn't this is more BS. The biggest power they have, Annie, of course, has to do with security and it has to do with what we do with the US military and the US Empire. So that is directly under the command of the of the commander in chief. You want to pull people out. You want to you want to deploy forces. You don't want to deploy forces. You want to assassinate people with drones. You don't want to assassinate people with drones. You want to let the CIA try and overthrow another government or not. Those are all decisions that are made in the Oval Office. And that's something that I think we I mean, we have to be as harsh as possible on Obama for this, because I'll cut him some slack with his domestic program, I guess, up until the point where he tries to pass the TPP, and then what, what, what are you supposed to do? Cut him slack for trying to pass the worst trade deal in the history of the world? Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're so quite these right. People, there's power in the executive branch, and it's particularly with regard to the military and the CIA and the Pentagon, but also the president can veto any legislation that comes his way. So any of the legislation that's passed by a right-wing-controlled uh, Senate and House meaning that if a Republican's in office, that's not going to get vetoed and everything that the Republicans pass because they control both the House and they might control the Senate again after 2016. Um, anything that's passed in those houses will go to a Republican's desk. It will be signed into law. Whereas if somebody like Bernie Sanders is in office, a lot of that legislation, if not all of it, that's passed by the right wing Congress will be vetoed. He will also have the the opportunity if he's in for eight years to possibly nominate four Supreme Court justices yeah. and our Supreme Court justices remain on the court for life or until they want to retire. And we're looking at two retiring in the first four years of the next president's uh, reign. And if the next president does eight years, we're looking at possibly replacing 
four Supreme Court justices. Right now, it's already five to four a, a conservative court. So you do the math. If it's yeah. a Republican president for eight years, we're looking at a court that could be nine conservative justices and zero liberal justices. Oh, that's horrific. Yeah. Well, okay. So back to the positive. The positive is a lot of people recognize this and the people in Bernie Sanders camp. I mean, think about this, Annie. No help from the media. A lot of the left threw this guy under the bus and are just now getting on the bandwagon if they are at all or still critiquing him. You know, mm. I'd say the sectarian left. No support from the major unions. There's only three unions out of 65 who endorse Clinton. There's only three unions, national unions, who've endorsed Sanders. Clinton has hundreds and hundreds of elected officials who've endorsed her. Sanders has maybe four or five. All of the banks, all of the corporations, all of the military contractors support Clinton. Sanders is getting an average of $27 a donation and is raising almost the same amount of money as her. It's the most small donations ever donated in the history of a U.S. presidential race. So, I mean, all of that against Bernie Sanders and his supporters, and still his supporters have been successful enough to have this this guy running neck and neck with Hillary Clinton. This, I mean, I'm sorry, but this has to tell people the kind of power that you have when you actually mobilize and work with each other. I mean, this is amazing that they are standing up to the banks, the corporations, the military contractors, the political establishment, the Democratic Party, the New York Times, every major newspaper in the United States, every major cable media outlet in the United States. This, I mean, this is truly amazing to me. I mean, this this gives me reason. Um, I don't want to use the word hope, but this gives me reason to be excited. You know, yeah. this is the kind of stuff that should be getting people excited because these are opportunities to organize people and people are already mobilizing around Sanders. I think the next question is the major question is if he doesn't get the nomination, what happens from here? Do people form another party? Do people try and uh, reform the Democratic Party? Do people form community organizations? Do people, uh, you know, sort of go into campaigning work and start conducting long-term campaigns on specific issues? You know, where do people go from here is the major question. If he doesn't get the nomination or even if he does get the nomination, you know, how do we keep this coalition of people together and how do we broaden this coalition? That's the way I think leftists and progressives and people who are thinking like organizers should be thinking about uh, this presidential campaign with Bernie Sanders. Well, there you go. That's uh, Vince Emanuel from Chicago in America and his analysis of what's going on in the U.S. leading up to the uh, elect- election of the uh, candidates that are going to then take them off to the uh, election of the next president in the U.S., of a 2016 and that's the end of uh, solidarity breakfast this week next week lalitha is back from her holiday and she'll be joined by humphrey mcqueen so tune in for that and uh we'll go out oh i'll tell you who was on today we uh, spoke to uh, charles wilkinson who was the director of uh Haida which is a film that's going to be on on the 23rd of February as part of the Transition Film Festival at Nova. If you want to book, uh, look on Nova's uh, website or go down there and buy a ticket. Uh, We also spoke to Domenica Favala about her exhibition Modern Myths at uh, Cunahan Galleries in Sydney Road, Brunswick. Uh, They've got a, a 
Artist Talks on at 2.30 today, so that should be interesting. And uh, we've just been listening to Vince Emmanuel. So I'll sign off. Asia Pacific Currents is coming up and we're going to go out with Fool Me Once, Autumn Grey. book by Elena and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.